Hello and welcome to Research Roundup brought to you by the Primary Care Collaborative Cancer Clinical Trials Group, PC4. I'm Christy Milley and each month we'll be looking at what's new in cancer in primary care research and I'll be talking to authors of recent publications and presentations. Today we're speaking with Associate Professor Dani Margalit from Harvard Medical School. She specialises in head and neck cancer treatment and she's also the Director of Radiation Oncology at the Dana-Farber and Brigham Merkel Cell Cancer Centre. We also welcome back Dr. Rebecca Venciaruti onto the podcast. Uh, Rebecca is a head and neck research fellow at Chris O'Brien Lifehouse and she's also at the University of Sydney. Danny and Rebecca are part of a team that has published a new systematic review about interventions for head and neck cancer survivors, and it's been published in the journal Head and Neck. Also, full disclosure for our listeners, this is a PC4-supported paper, so I'm also an author on the paper, and it's an important area for PC4. Um, We're always working towards improving cancer survivorship, focusing on interventions that involve GPs and primary care. Welcome, Danny and Rebecca. Thank you, Christy. Thanks for the invitation to join. Thanks, Christy. Good to be back. To start off with, Rebecca, I'm interested in learning how survivorship care is delivered here in Australia. And Danny, what does it look like in the US? So in Australia, survivorship care is delivered primarily as specialist-led follow-up. So for head and neck cancer survivors, this involves close follow-up by their surgeons and or oncologists, generally up to five years after treatment. And depending on their treatment and their needs, they may also be followed up regularly by specialist nurses, dietitians, speech pathologists, dentists, and other members of the multidisciplinary team. However, given that in Australia, GPs are the first contact for the majority of care in general, GPs certainly have a role in survivorship care for cancer patients, including head and neck cancer patients. Thanks, Rebecca. In the United States, uh, survivorship care is not delivered in a a uniform manner um, across the country, sometimes even across the same city. The setting where it is delivered optimally is in a specialist um, oncology environment uh, where the patient's oncology providers are familiar with the treatment that they received and what sort of issues one should be screening for. This is the case in where I practice at Brigham and Women Dana-Farber, where we do like to follow people. And even beyond five years, we'll see people yearly. But just because some of the late effects, especially radiation-related, can manifest very late. But the reality is that many people, as they get older or as they return to work and feel good, or if they don't have the resources to commute into a large specialty center, many people do end up being followed by their primary care provider. And I think it can be challenging at times because they may not know exactly what type of treatment the patient had, the exact location of the cancer, and then what to look for. And so optimally, primary care providers would be given a survivorship care plan outlining the patient's history and treatment, uh, what uh, they should be screened for. But uh, survivorship care plans are not uniformly uh, given out by specialty centers Um, And so there has been a lot of work done to try optimize that. So there is a 
a lot of work to be done in trying to improve the uniformity of survivorship care across the U.S. Could you tell us a bit about how both of you became interested in head and neck cancer research, particularly in survivorship? To me, it was incredibly um, rewarding, a specialty of oncology. Uh, Firstly, it, it is challenging. So one has to think through the, the many different kinds of cancers that can occur, and each has their own behavior. And there's a really close relationship that one develops with patients from the very beginning when trying to decide on the optimal treatment to the survivorship phase. And survivorship care is really one of the most rewarding things that I do because one gets to see life beyond cancer treatment. Um, and to help people optimize their quality of life and their physical and role functioning. And uh, you get to know people very well. And so that really inspired me to to be involved in survivorship care research, uh, just because that's such a large part of my practice. And I really would like it to be more accessible to non-oncology specialists uh, so that they feel empowered to help people identify long-term effects and then have the resources to know what to do about it. Um, And it can be challenging. So it's a very rewarding field. So I initially trained as a clinical dietitian and through this training, as well as in subsequent research positions, I became acutely aware of the unique needs of patients and survivors of head and neck cancer. Uh, The cancer itself, as well as the treatment, can affect critical structures of the head and neck, which are involved in breathing, speech, swallowing, and nonverbal communication. And the effects of treatment and late effects can be quite disfiguring. And because they're affecting the face, they can't easily be covered up. So these patients are at risk of high levels of anxiety and depression, poor quality of life, and they sometimes struggle to reintegrate as productive members of society after treatment. But because these patients often retreat from society, a lot of these survivorship problems are essentially hidden from view, uh, which is what led to my interest in head and neck cancer survivorship. Head and neck cancer is complex and survivors tend to have unique needs. At the moment, are you finding that head and neck cancer survivors are being supported adequately? I'd say it's definitely an evolving space. As is the case for many other cancers, we're seeing improvements in survival and therefore increasing numbers of head and neck cancer survivors because of improvements in diagnosis and treatment approaches. And while there's been a large amount of research in survivorship, particularly over the past 15 to 20 years, it's mostly been done in survivors of more common cancers like breast, colorectal and prostate cancer. And so we can't simply apply those findings to more uncommon cancers like head and neck cancer because, as you say, these patients do have unique and different concerns. And it's only in the past decade or so that we've started to see the true extent of survivorship concerns of patients treated for head and neck cancer because we're getting better at understanding their needs and recognising when they they may have unmet needs. The numbers do vary, but it's estimated about two-thirds of head and neck cancer survivors have at least one unmet need. And so I think there's uh, some way to go to ensure that we're supporting survivors of head and neck cancer and addressing their physical and psychosocial needs after treatment. I completely agree uh, with Rebecca that it is an evolving space. And some of the 
aspects of uh, survivorship care uh, that need to be more clearly elucidated are getting a better understanding of some of the late, late effects, you know, 10, 20, 30 years down the road. Um, And these are often hard to measure. For example, people may bring to their provider's attention when they have difficulty opening their mouth or swallowing. But there are more subtle things as well. People may not necessarily be aware of hearing impairments or if kidneys, you know, if they have uh, proteinuria or um, magnesium wasting as a result of chemotherapy. And so a lot of these effects um, are not well characterized. And it is a, it's a very hard thing to study. I think one of the challenges of survivorship research is um, how to characterize some of these late effects so that practitioners know to monitor them. You looked at studies internationally for survivors that were at least one year post-treatment, and you assess these interventions according to the quality of cancer survivorship care framework. What were the challenges of evaluating these interventions? So a lot of the studies that we looked at didn't report on key elements of the study design or the patient population, which are really important in in, a, in any study, but particularly a systematic review. And that meant that even among randomised control trials, most had a medium to high risk of bias. Often we were unable to find information about allocation concealment, blinding, there were incomplete information on participant follow-up or a lack of pre-specified endpoints and sample size, which means that the quality of evidence in this review was generally low. And the other challenge was that there was significant heterogeneity of the included studies, which meant that we couldn't conduct any meta-analyses of the results and and so we relied on uh, a narrative synthesis of, of the findings. Did you find any effective interventions for head and neck cancer survivors? And what gaps did you find? Yep, so we did find a few effective interventions. As Rebecca just mentioned, we identified out of the 28 interventional studies that we identified, and this specifically is in people that have completed their treatment and they're no longer in the acute phase. So these uh, people who've had at least a year of follow-up, there was only one out of the 28 that had a low risk of bias. And I think one of the strengths of the studies is we did rigorously utilize um, the JBI uh, risk of bias tool So we really tried to do a thorough job um, because the assessment of bias was an important part of the study. So there was only one that had a low risk of bias, and that was um, a study looking at dysphagia management with uh, dilation, esophageal dilation. And there were a few others that had medium risk of bias that uh, really had a, a um, not much of a downside. So, for example, there was a intervention that was community-based, one of the very few that was not based in an academic center, where uh, people did Tai Chi. And it was um, shown that it helped with quality of life and some metrics of cardiovascular health. And we felt that this um, was a good potential intervention uh, just because it was community-based And it had a low downside. It wasn't a a dangerous intervention. But there were a few, especially trismus uh, management, dysphagia management, 
Um, but some of the gaps that we found is that most of the studies focused on uh, physical and psychosocial health, which is very important, uh, but they were often the aspects of survivorship care that were a little easier to pinpoint and to quantify, as opposed to interventions aimed at uh, preventing and identifying recurrences, or even more difficult, and we were only about one intervention in each domain of prevention of chronic medical conditions or overall health promotion. So the gaps are that there's some domains which are important in survivorship care in which there are very few studies because they're often the ones that require longer-term follow-up and are often a little harder to measure. And we, we also found uh, that in terms of outcomes of these studies, uh, most of them, again, focused on a physical or health-related quality of life metric as opposed to healthcare utilization, hospitalization, and cost, which um, are also important outcome metrics. You know, when on a global payer basis, organizations are looking uh, to see whether an intervention is something that would be covered by insurance, for example. You know, payers often want to see improved survival, decreased healthcare utilization, decreased costs, and and really, uh, very few of these studies looks at those outcomes as well. Not that their outcomes weren't important, but th- there are these other domains that are very important when showing value to these interventions. Um, but I do have to say, even though some of the studies had you know a high or medium risk of bias, it was impressive to see that the authors had embarked on even doing a study, which are very hard to do. Um, in a population where there was a large loss to follow-up, people with complex needs, heterogeneous tumor types and treatments. So it's um, we identified many of the challenges in this field. And so I, I really uh, felt that um, I'm grateful to each of these groups for attempting to really improve the lives of, of people who had uh, received head and neck cancer treatment. Were you surprised by any of the findings? Were any of the studies that you reviewed good quality, poor quality, and were they tested on large groups? I was quite surprised uh, at the quality ratings of the included studies. As Danny mentioned, only one of the 28 studies included in the review had a low risk of bias. And, and certainly there was a lot of heterogeneity in the interventions, more so than at least I had anticipated. So, you know, it's challenging to draw comparison between studies in those circumstances. But just to reiterate what Danny says, I think this is a, a really challenging space to conduct research. And, you know, many studies were conducted in in small groups. I think three quarters uh, had sample sizes less than 100. But I think this reflects the challenging nature of head and neck cancer. So head and neck cancer, it's actually a group of cancers. It represents, you know, more than 10 anatomical sites and many different cancer types. And so it's an inherent challenge in this tumour stream. It's a relatively uncommon cancers in, in most developed countries where 
most of these studies were done as well. So I think we have to, you know, tip our hats to the investigators of these studies to tackle this. And I think there's a lot of learnings that we can certainly take away in future studies in this space. Was general practice involved in any of the interventions that you identified? I have to say that none of the interventions that I identified uh, were led by uh, general practitioners. So most of these studies recruit people from an academic or high volume specialty center, which is, I suppose, not a big surprise uh, because otherwise enrollment may be very slow. And very few were held in a community-based setting or in a patient's home. There were a few that were web-based interventions where uh, people that are motivated can and have the electronic savvy can do it from their own homes. We did not find any that were GP-led, but it is a space where the general practitioner has such a large potential role in assuring or trying to assure that the health of their patients. I think what's really important is to provide GPs with the resources to outline what they should be looking for. For example, lab screening, considering carotid ultrasounds, looking carefully in the mouth, and then also providing people with the local resources for what to do if they find something that they are concerned about. Uh, Where do they refer uh, people for assessment of a concerning oral lesion or um, if someone has neck spasms and they need to see um, a physical therapist, who in the area has experience with this, who is lymphedema therapy trained for head and neck. So the reality is many people end up focusing their care and on the GP And there is tremendous loss to follow up in a specialty center, even when we try follow people for life. And so uh, having a uniform way to convey what GPs can look for and what to do about it, that seems to me to be one of the most important things. And what do you think are implications for the role of general practice in head and neck cancer survivorship? What can we do to support general practice in their role? So the treatment paradigm for head and neck cancer has changed uh, in such a way there's been a shift from it being about acute care to more chronic disease management. And I think this is where GPs will play an increasingly central part of management of head and neck cancer survivors, especially in Australia where the dominant model of care is specialist-led. There are some centres in Australia that are trialling shared care models, which involve both oncologists and GPs, or oncology nurse-led models of care. And the basis for a shift away from specialist-led models of survivorship care is is really that they're becoming increasingly unsustainable due to cost, uh, workforce issues, so just the the number of uh, specialists needed to support the increasing number of survivors. And also, as Danny alluded to before, access issues. So particularly in Australia, where we have a very geographically dispersed population, so something like head and neck cancer, where a majority of care is 
provided in high volume centres, which are typically in, in large cities, this requires patients to travel into the city regularly for the specialist appointments if outreach clinics aren't available. So these sorts of uh, shared care models involving GPs or perhaps nurse-led models can overcome some of those barriers. And GPs play a crucial role in survivorship care for head and neck cancer, especially in health systems where they're the first port of call for patients with health problems. But because head and neck cancer is relatively uncommon, if we just consider mucosal cancers and not head and neck skin cancers and thyroid cancers, the number of times a GP will actually see a head and neck cancer, say, in a year or even over their career is low. Uh, if we compare it to something like breast or prostate or colorectal cancer. So if we do shift towards a GP-led or shared model of care, I think we need to do two things. And I'm really glad that Danny actually brought them up for me. Firstly, it's really to ensure that GPs feel confident to detect and manage survivorship concerns specific to head and neck cancer. So including health promotion, how patients can return to health after treatment or return to good health, uh, detection of disease recurrence or new primaries, managing treatment side effects and those late effects as well, and providing support for psychosocial concerns. And secondly, to ensure that GPs feel that they're supported by specialists, that they're not in it alone. So these specialists may be uh, medical or nursing specialists with expertise in head and neck cancer and to provide firm referral networks for medical, nursing, dentistry or allied health practitioners when those survivorship concerns and, and problems are detected uh, to make sure that patients can receive the care that they require. Those are excellent points, Rebecca. I'm, I'm glad that you spelled that out. And I, I completely agree with that sentiment about, you know, making sure there's some open line of communication between the GP and the oncology providers. And I find that, um, I don't know how it is in Australia, but we have many different electronic medical record systems. So it's always easier to communicate with a GP who has the same EMR that we do, where you can even send messages or they can see the notes and we can write out, um, I recommend this or that. They can send me their questions. But uh, one of the great difficulties is, you know, branching different electronic medical record systems. And that's where it becomes difficult because, you know, we are all busy providers so how to maintain that open line of communication is so key. Thanks so much for your time today, Danny and Rebecca. It was great to chat with you. Thanks for downloading Research Roundup produced by PC4. You can access the articles and other information in our show notes. Please let us know what you think about this episode by emailing us at info at pc4tg.com.au or keep in touch via Twitter where you'll find us at pc4tg. And there's also our website, which is pc4tg.com.au.